You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com National Editor Matt Myers. On today's show... The two best offenses in baseball over the last month are going to play this weekend, and I guarantee you do not know who they are. Um, Maybe the Mets are trying to tell us something. I know the Mets have had a very interesting season. The Mets are kind of good lately. It's super weird. We need to dig into what's going on with Marcelo Zuna, and is Eric Hosmer finally trying to get the ball off the ground? I don't know, but maybe. Matt, hello. Who are the two best offenses over the last 30 days? I know you know the answer to this, but let's pretend you didn't. Uh, well, I mean, knowing you were asking the question, that would probably be enough to, to lead me to the Rays and the A's. The Rays and the A's. This weekend, the A's and the Rays are going to play three games in Tampa Bay. And I'm trying to imagine the outcomes of a scenario in April where you were told in September that is basically must-watch baseball. Uh, the Rays are eight games behind Oakland in the wild card. They probably don't have a shot, but like if they sweep them this weekend, maybe like the Rays have been playing unbelievably good out of their minds. And I think when we look at the Rays, we, we think about the opener a lot. We think about what they're doing with their relievers. We don't talk about their offense very much. If you look at offenses over the last 30 days by weighted runs created plus, where 100 is league average, number one at 120, Tampa Bay tied at number one with a 120, Oakland ahead of the Dodgers. Makes sense. The Astros make sense. And the Mets. We'll get back to the Mets. What? <laughs> but the Rays having a good offense, that's not exactly what you think about them for this year. You think about the opener. You think about Blake Snell. You think about all the trades. You don't think about productive batting. Yeah, because they also they don't really have, even they don't even have like the one obvious guy. Like at least with the um, with the A's, you can be like, okay, well, you know, they've got Chapman. He's having a really good year. There's like more Chris play. With a K. Yeah, there's like exactly uh crush davis like so like there are guys that sort of jump out at you with the rays they don't really have that kind of guy over the last month the rays are hitting 278 352 on base now that is the best in baseball and a 446 slugging which is above average and you know you're exactly right when you look at their expected weighted on base over the last 30 days the a's are first the rays are 15th or excuse me 13th you know which is it's fine it's not great but what's really interesting to me is if you think about the way that they've really turned over their roster since last year, for sure, uh, when they had Longoria and Logan Morrison, but even since the beginning of this year, uh, if you look at the leaders in second half weighted runs created plus minimum 100 plate appearances, the Rays have three guys in the top 30. One of them is G-Man Choi, who is 14th, Tommy Pham, who is 21st, and Malik Smith, who's 27th. Now, we've talked about Malik Smith on the show before kind of had this reputation as being a light-hitting, good outfielder, and he's actually been crushing the ball lately. Um, G-Man Choi is a fascinating story. G-Man Choi uh, was an Angels prospect, played a little bit with them, got some time with the Yankees last year, was with Milwaukee earlier this year. So in parts of three seasons, hit 191, 297, 408. That's bad. That's an 81-weighted runs created plus. He was traded to Tampa Bay on June 10th, and since then he's hit 290, 379, 392. That is a 154 weighted runs created plus. That's really, really good. Uh, he was traded for Brad Miller, by the way. Brad Miller has had his moments. Brad Miller was cut on July 31st and is no longer employed. So that's a deal I would say that's worked out pretty well uh, for the Rays. G-Man Choi is just like, you know, he's a platoon first baseman, I guess. He's a he's a large man and he's so much fun to watch. 
crush baseballs. When he hit that walk-off home run again against the Indians the other night off Brad Hand, which was like one of the more unexpected home runs of the year, he had like one of the most amazing like fist pumps as he uh, rounded first base. It was a pretty cool moment. Yeah, and so what they've kind of done is find these guys and improve them. Like Tommy Pham. We've been huge fans of Tommy Pham on the show for a long time. Tommy Pham was not really having a good year with St. Louis. Uh, with the Cardinals, he was about a league average player. 331 on base, 399 slugging. Got traded to Tampa Bay, 422 on base, 540 slugging. I don't think he's actually that good of a player, but he's he was, been, he's, he was, he was last year. I, I, right, but he's been playing really well. Um, and then also they promoted Brandon Lau, who is uh, an infielder, 354 on base, 463 slugging. After in AAA this year, 380 on base, 613 slugging. They've got a lot of talent on this team, and I don't think that they are actually the best offense in baseball. As you said, it's hard to do that without a real star. But they seem like they're deep. You know, Kiermaier's been hitting really well. And Joey Wendell's had a nice year. And Robertson's had an okay year. Almost seems like they shouldn't have traded Wilson Ramos in retrospect because they didn't really get anything for him. Um, but it's it's fascinating to me that the Rays, for all we talk about their offense and even their defense, which is pretty good, they're starting to hit. They have cut their strikeout rate from this year uh, compared to last year more than any team in baseball. And that seems like a good thing, even in the world of endless strikeouts. Yeah, see, and then they don't forget CJ Cron, who they basically got for, for nothing from the Angels in the offseason, who's had a nice year for them. Well, they got him for nothing, but they had to trade Corey Dickerson away. I guess that's to, true. To get him, so. but at least he's at least he's ju- he's justified it by playing well. Yes, he has he has played pretty well. Um, so anyway, that's interesting. The Rays are hitting; they are uh, probably too far out. But if they were in any other division, uh, you know, if they were in the National League, they would have the third most wins in the it league. Right? Kind of, I mean, it is it is kind of crazy right now. They've got eighty wins, uh, and the Braves. You know, and the, if you look at the, if you look at the National League, the Braves have eighty two. Um, the Cubs have 84, the Milwaukee has 84, and Colorado has 80. So basically they have as many wins as any team in the NL West, and they are eight games back in the lost column for the wild card. It's amazing kind of how you know just the randomness of teams in a given year can have such an impact on your perception of, of the team that year, and the Rays are like the prime example. In some ways, I think this is like the most impressive season they've ever had when you factor in that the Yankees and Red Sox are in their division, basically arguably the two best rosters in baseball – and they're going to basically put up a win total on par with anyone else in the league. And Chris Archer wasn't that good for them. And Brett Honeywell got hurt. And Anthony Bonda got hurt. And Jose De Leon got hurt. And everybody got hurt, and they've been able to do this. Um, so they're playing the A's this weekend. This is, I think, my favorite scheduling thing of the year, right? If you look at the probable pitchers for A's at Rays this weekend, Friday, it's uh, TBD for the A's against Diego Castillo for Tampa Bay, who's an opener. Saturday, they are both listed TBD on both sides, and Sunday, both listed on TBD for both sides. There's no such thing as a starting pitcher anymore for these two teams outside of, like, I don't know, Mike Fires and Blake Snell. Blake Snell's been unbelievable. Do you think Blake Snell has a shot to win the Cy Young Award this year? I think he's got a really good shot to win the Cy Young Award this year. I don't think he's going to win it, but I do think he's got a shot. He uh, yesterday took a no-hitter against Cleveland into, what, the sixth or seventh inning, I think? I think seventh, yes, and seventh. Ended up with uh, allowing one hit. Uh, he's got a 203 ERA, and I think we all know that ERA is not you know necessarily the only good tool to judge a pitcher, but it's a really interesting one in his case. He has uh, his 203 ERA is the best in Rays history. Now, I get it. It's only back to 1998. We're not talking about the Cardinals or some team back to the 19th century. Even so, that's an impressive thing for a franchise. Depending on what Chris Sale does, Chris uh, Blake Snell may have the lowest American League ERA since Pedro Martinez. Now, Blake Snell has qualified for the leaderboards by pitching his seven innings yesterday. Chris Sale has not. He's got 147 innings. He'll need to get to 162. 
I don't know if that's actually going to happen. He's supposed to throw three innings this weekend. I don't think it's going. I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, it's probably like if he throws three innings this weekend, can he get a dozen more? I guess he had, there'd over be the two, next two, two more starts. I guess there's two weeks left in the season. Maybe he will. But the Red Sox have won a billion games. Like, are they really going to push him? Uh, I, only to the extent that they want him sort of quote unquote stretched out for game one of the ALDS. I've, ha- I've long had this theory that when it comes to award ballots, if if voters don't see a guy listed without having to change the qualifier, they think he just doesn't exist. I think that will actually cost him votes. Anyway, the point is Chris Sale has a 196 ERA that is lower, uh, but if he doesn't qualify for the leaderboard, then Snell's 203 will be the lowest American Assuming league, he keeps this ERA, of course. course uh, but it will be the lowest in the American League since Pedro Martinez had a 174 in 2000, which is, I think, the most single most impressive pitching season in like baseball history if you consider the world of baseball in the American League East in 2000. Yes. That is that or or the year before. Yeah, it was like <laughs> the, the peak offense um basically like that like the the, the best offensive area of our lifetime and basically dominating like, right. you know putting up putting up raw numbers like Bob Gibson and Koufax in the same. Well, that's the thing, right? 174 is obviously higher than Bob Gibson's 112, but Bob Gibson did it in the year of the pitcher. He didn't do it in 2000 in the American League East. So that's also cool. Let me quick aside on Chris Sale, I should say. If he doesn't win a Cy Young Award, this is kind of amazing. This will be the one, because he's going to finish in the top five in Cy Young voting no matter what. This is going to be the one, two, three, four, five, sixth straight year he will finish in the top five. In AL Cy Young voting. And by the way, the year before that, he finished sixth. It's kind of, but he still never won the Cy Young Award. And it was, once again, it was sort of looking like this was going to be his year, like things were going in his direction. You know, Kluber's had some struggles, but then of course he gets hurt and his inning total is going to be the lowest he's ever had. And suddenly, well, Kluber, Kluber's having struggles, that opens it up for sale. But no, here comes Blake Snell, who not only is on par with him ERA, for anyone who is a voter who cares about wins, most likely not a, vote, a listener to this show, but Blake Snell's going to get 20 wins. Wouldn't it be amazing if Blake Snell wins this award because he has 20 wins and in the National League, Jacob deGrom wins the award with only eight wins? Like clearly saying we don't care about wins? I have the belief that at this point, Jacob deGrom is almost better off not winning games. Oh, I agree. For because sure. no one who is going to vote for him because of wins is going to vote for him if he gets nine wins or 10 wins. Right. And he's a better story this way. Yeah. I completely agree with you on that. Uh, but you're right. Blake Snell will probably get, I don't know, 21 wins and a He's at, 19, he's at 19 now. Um, I still don't think he's going to win. So here, here's why. You you need to break down the American League Cy Young contenders, I think, into two groups, right? You've got the guys who have been really, really good with limited innings, which to me I think is Snell and Sale. And of those two guys, I pick Sale. He's been better. Uh, the stack ass numbers are better. The expected weighted on base. He's been the best in baseball. Or you go with the guys who have been very, very good in a lot more innings. Now you're talking about Verlander, uh, Garrett Cole, Corey Kluber. And I think you know, they've all got their own arguments. I still think I pick Sale. Like he's, even in his limited innings, he's leading in Fangraph's wins above replacement, which does account for playing time. I don't know. I, I think Snell's going to have a good shot, but I, I would be surprised if he actually wins because his best case, I think, will be wins, which shouldn't matter when Jacob deGrom's not going to get it because of wins. I don't know. I think he's, he has a good chance of leading the league in the RA. He's going to get three more starts. So he's going to end up with 180 plus innings. We should keep that in mind too for Snell. And I, I th- I wouldn't discount the impact of kind of narrative here. You know, there's there's going to be a little voter fatigue on Kluber, who's won it twice and is 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 not pitching well right now. Um, Verlander's won it before. Sale it might just feel like, oh well, he's not pitching that well. He's not as good as he was last year. I, I think it's going to be tight. I've got I think there's a lot of narrative around Snell, and for all the talk that we have about you know voter bias, big market bias, East Coast bias. 
guys from small market teams win awards all the time. I feel like a lot of time people talk themselves into voting. Is it, remember when when it, was it Morneau or Maurer beat out Jeter in a year that Jeter probably had a better year? Like people talk themselves out of voting for big market guys all the time. I think there's going to be some, a lot of support for Snell. Wouldn't it be amazing if in the year that we will always remember as the first year of the opener where they've completely blown up any kind of starting pitching norms, if their one regular starting pitcher wins a Cy Young Award? <laughs> that would be fantastic. <laughs> uh, yeah, hey, as I'm saying, I think it's going to happen. A few more quick things on Blake Snell. He has one of the lowest home ERAs since integrated baseball began in 1947, a 1.24 ERA at home. Uh, that is unbelievable, by the way. So if you look at everybody who's had at least 160 innings in a season since 1947, there's some names here, like Sandy Koufax in 1964 and Oral Hershiser in 1985. Jose Fernandez in 2013. These are unbelievable players. Blake Snell is on that list. Uh, the home field advantage in the trap, I think, is kind of more sizable than people think it is. It's actually kind of a big deal. Uh, it's like a, a run and a half or so lower for the team in the Tropicana field. So that's a big deal. And, um, you know, we did talk about put pinning ERAs to league average, and you can do that with a stack called ERA minus. It's sort of like OPS plus where it's park adjusted and it compares to the league average for that year. There have been 6,000 qualified pitching seasons since 1947, uh, not approximately 6,000. I looked this up this morning, exactly 6,000 on the nose. Only 21 seasons have had an ERA minus under 50. So 100 is league average. If you have an ERA minus of 90 or 10% above average, you get the point here. And if you look at those 21 seasons, it's like a list of the best seasons in baseball history. Ron Guidry in 1978, Bob Gibson in 68, four years from Pedro Martinez, three years from Clemens, Jake Arrieta in 2015, and DeGrom and Snell from this year are both on the list. Now, Presumably Snell, a sale would get there. If he qualifies. That's right. And if this doesn't account for innings, so you can say that, you know, I don't know how many innings Bob Gibson threw in 1968, but I'm going to guess it's a little more than Snell's going to get this year. Uh, so you need to account for all of that. But really, I think we kind of forget that Snell got sent down to the minor leagues last year. Like his turnaround has been unbelievable this year. Yeah, one thing I noticed when looking at his numbers is, you know, the the curveball is sort of his trademark pitch. It's kind of the, the wow pitch. He has like an unbelievable curveball. Uh, if you look at expected weight on base on at bats ending in curveballs, he is by far the lowest in baseball uh, among among pitchers with 75 at bats ending in curveball. His expected weight on base against is 137, um, which is in front of Verlander, in front of uh, Nola, in front of a bunch of relievers who use the the, the curveball predominantly. And what's interesting about Snell is we've seen a lot of pitchers who with great curveballs start throwing it a lot more, you know, 40% of the time, 50% of the time, the old Rich Hill uh, uh, method. But he's still only throwing it about 20% of the time. That said, that's still twice as much as he was throwing it last year, and his ERA is right now about half of what it was last year. You may have noticed when I, I read the list of the top five offenses over the last 30 days that the Mets were on it. And I think we actually have to talk about the Mets for a second because I'm sort of my arm. talking myself <laughs> into the Mets here. Um, but quickly before we do, this episode of the StatCast podcast is presented by Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage is simple so you can understand the details and get approved in as few as eight minutes. Apply simply, understand fully, mortgage confidently at rocketmortgage.com. Based on a sample of Rocket Mortgage clients who met qualifying approval criteria and specific loan requirements at the time of application. Results may vary. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Number 3030. Um, what do you think people are going to remember about the Mets in 2018? It's it's kind of been like a comedy of errors in a lot of ways. DeGrom. Some, well, okay. Yeah. Uh, some self-inflicted and some just, you know, injury plagued. And I don't know. It, it has not been a memorable season for Mets fans, I guess is, a, is safe to say. They went 5-21 and 21 in June, and uh, that's that's bad. That's yes. the number. So. Since then, they are 34-30. and 30. They have a better record in that time since Phillies. 
better than the Diamondbacks, the Nationals, the Pirates, they're equal to the Braves. That is kind of a sustained run of being okay, right? Which is sort of surprising based on the narrative around the team, um, just kind of being an enormous mess. And over the last 30 days, they are fifth in weighted runs created plus among team offenses. Obviously, Jacob deGrom has been unbelievable, but if you look at the second half ERA leaders, he is only fifth. First is Zach Wheeler. And I know we've talked about Zach Wheeler here before. He's been incredible. 132 ERA in the second half that is tied for the best in baseball. So, yeah, I, think- I, I saw someone tweet this earlier today. I had to double check it, and it's true that he, he now has a lower ERA in the season than Luis Severino. That's wild. Yeah. <laughs> and now I have no confidence in any Mets pitcher staying healthy. But if you go into next year with DeGrom and Syndergaard and Wheeler, all of a sudden you've got something there. That's that's a start of a very good rotation if they're all and also i mean the thing about the 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 mets is that like there are like legitimate changes in their lineup that make you think that like okay the team has uh has had had a lot of trouble scoring in the first half and it still had trouble scoring at home we'll get to that more in a second but you see some changes in the lineup not only just the players playing and also some of like the guys who sort of have improved for legitimate reasons that make you think like okay there actually might be um you know, a bit of a core here that that's that's team controlled and youngish to get excited about. I want to talk about their middle infielders. All right. So one of these guys we talked about months ago, and we're going to get back to Ahmed Rosario. But first, Jeff McNeil, I don't want to say he's totally out of nowhere. Like prospect people have been talking about him as like a nice-ish kind of. Well, he, you know. he had a big year in the minors a couple of years ago. Then he was hurt. And then this year from day one, he was one of the best hitters in the minors all year. Right. But he was playing in, well, I guess he started in double A. And then he went to triple A in Vegas, obviously inflates offense. And ever since he's come up to the Mets, 340, 398 on base, 494 slugging. It's very good. That's a 147 weighted runs created plus. Uh, his his expected weighted on base is 359. That's really good. The average is about 330. Uh, and his actual weighted on base is 375. So he's overperforming, but but not by much. It seems like he's earned all this. He doesn't really hit the ball that hard. Uh, 31% hard hit rate. That's actually slightly below average. He's not the kind of guy who's going to go just crush dingers. But what I found really interesting about him is his plate discipline is unbelievable. And that, that's great. You can't really teach that in, in an effective way. He has a 9% strikeout rate since he's come up. That is tied for the fourth lowest in baseball. Number one is Andrelton Simmons at 6%. That is elite. That's really, really good. And he's got uh, an, an amazing ability to swing at strikes since he's come up. Uh, excuse me, anybody who's got 100 plate appearances this year, he has tied for the second highest zone swing percentage with Scott Shubler. 80% of the pitches he sees in the zone, he swings at. And I know it sounds unbelievably simple to say swing at strikes and don't swing at not strikes, but it's really hard to do that. And I think that that's not something you can fake. Like he's doing this right away. That seems to me to be a sustainable skill. If he can make quality, you know, contact of the ball with like good enough power, he's never going to have elite power. That's a really useful player. Yeah. And guys like that just stand out a lot in this day and age with so many, so many hitters kind of having the kind of three true outcomes approach, you know, having a guy in your lineup who puts the ball in play and sort of it's almost like a different look. It's like almost like a change of pace. It, I think there's there's some value in that as you kind of try and find it, how do you try and strategize to pitch to a lineup? So he's like, he's unlike any other hitter the Mets have had really since since the, since Daniel Murphy left. I've been trying to think about the difference between Jeff McNeil and Peter Alonso because McNeil came up uh, and Alonso has not come up, obviously. And there's a lot of reasons you can think about why. Uh, Alonso's defense is objectively terrible. The Mets do have other options at first base. Uh, and clearly the service time implications have come up. And it's interesting to me uh, that the Mets didn't seem to care about that when they came to McNeil. Like they didn't care about starting his clock. And I assume they do care about it for Alonzo. Is Alonzo actually that much better of a prospect to you? Like, I think he's a, he's a good prospect, but what's his peak? Like, I don't know, Mark Trumbo. Well, the difference, the difference is that they had to add him to the 40 man 
this year or, or risk losing him. So there was there definitely was the like okay we actually have to bring him up and see what see what see what he has with Alonzo. And if if you're interested in the nitty gritty, uh, our friend Adam Fisher on the the Shea Anything podcast did a really good breakdown of sort of like the forty man reasons not to bring up uh, Alonzo. And to me, that's obviously the biggest reason. Because I don't think this is a service time thing. He's not a guy that you like hold back in hopes of. He's not that kind of prospect where you're like, oh, I, I want that extra year. Like if, if Pete Alonso turns out to be a, a real impact player, that's gravy. And like I think that like I think that's true. I, I think it's a mistake to consider him in the same way you'd think about an Eloy Jimenez or or a Vlad Guerrero. Um, I I also do think that's an ancillary benefit the team is not unhappy about for sure is having for that sure. extra year. For sure, but they, whatever it is, the Mets have like 48 guys in their 40 man, including guys right. in the 60 DDL. So if they want to make additions this offseason, they really have already, they already have to knock a lot of guys off. And since they don't have to add Alonzo this offseason, like there there's not a hugely compelling reason to add him. I think people forget that that's how it works. There is no 60-day DL in the offseason. So like right now, you want to Cespedes is on the 60. He doesn't count against the 40 man. He's got to get put back on there for this offseason. Anybody else is on that list has to go back or be you know released or whatever. So there's two points I'll make. Is one of which is no, I don't think I think because of his profile, a left-handed hitting second baseman who can play third base, hit for average, and be like a, a unique hitter in a lineup, um, I don't think Alonzo is a much better prospect than Neil. I guess Alonzo is a couple years younger, so that's that has some value. I mean, you know, McNeil's already like uh, 26. Yeah. Uh, but the other thing I'll say is I think a big part of the reason they didn't want to call up Alonzo is because I think in a, in a perfect world they would trade Jay Bruce this offseason, and if they can give him time at first base and market him as, hey, here's a guy who can play first base and the outfield – he becomes a lot more valuable. So I think the, to me, the, the biggest reason to do it was to let Jay Bruce get at bats and prove that he's healthy and prove that he could play first base. He's been really good. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to make too much of 58 plate appearances. That's what Bruce has had since he's come off the DL. Um, but 362 on base and a 569 slugging for Jay Bruce has been really good. He's, for the last few years of his career, going back to that, that down year he had in, in 14, I think, in, in, Cincinnati. in Cincinnati, he's not a superstar. He's probably an overrated player in, in aggregate because he was a highly tattered prospect. And it turned out to be like a good but not great player who's streaky, but his streaks have seemed to coincide with health. You know, like he had he was he was hurt in fourteen, but it was like oh, it turned out he had like I think it was a shoulder, uh, knee. I think. Oh, forget, knee, and then yeah. okay, then he came back and was good again. And yeah. this year he had the plantar fasciitis. He was out for a long time, and then he's come back and oh, like. He's hitting, so yeah. there there definitely seems to be something to that. Um, the other middle infielder we need to talk about for a second is Ahmed Rosario. You may remember that uh, back in June, I did a list of the ten most improved hitters in baseball, just based entirely on expected weight and on base. And Mookie Betts is on that list, and Xander Bogarts, and Matt Kemp, and that all made enough sense. Ahmed Rosario showed up on that list for reasons I couldn't quite explain because, uh, well, I could explain why, right? His strikeouts were down. Right now, they are down by nine points from twenty nine percent to twenty percent. He's doubled his walk rate. His hard hit rate is up. And those are all very good things. But the season line at the time was still pretty terrible. Even now, after he's had a nice hot streak, his on-base percentage is only 294. But we're starting to see the, the fruits of that. I was so confused at the time. Like, why isn't he hitting well? Like, everything underlying says it's been really good. Um, since August 1st, I met Rosario, 288, 325, 444 slugging, a 111 weighted runs created plus. Last night, in that very rain-delayed game against Marlins, he crushed a home run. That was that ball was blasted. And I, I think, you know, it's taken him, like, an entire year to figure it out. He seems like he might actually be the kind of prospect that they were thinking about when he came up. I can see McNeil Rosario being their middle infield for a few years. It's certainly it's certainly setting up that way. There's definitely some hesitancy. I'd, I'd imagine there's some hesitancy to just sort of give McNeil the job after kind of one half year of um, good performance in the majors. But 
depending on how the offseason plays out, or, or since he's since he is a little versatile, they could go out and get like another utility man type um, to sort of fill in and maybe be like sort of the the in case of emergency plan at second base. But based on if you take his minor league performance and big league performance this year, there's a lot of reasons to believe that. McNeil can be an above-average major leaguer. And the other good news for the Mets is uh, there are two big-name outfielders, aside from Cespedes. Michael Conforto seems like he's finally coming back. It's been, I guess, a little over a year now since he hurt his shoulder, uh, early last September. And the first half wasn't that great. Uh, 366 slugging is not very good. 100 weighted runs created plus, he was league average. In the second half, that slugging has gone from 366 to 516. Hard hit rate up from 35 to 40% a 130 weighted runs created plus. He sort of looks like himself. And he's hit like 15 home runs in the second half, I think. Something like that, yeah. He's he's looked very, he has looked like himself. That is incredibly promising. The shoulder injuries are a nightmare. And also Brandon Nimmo, he got off to that really good start and he has sustained it. He's actually been better in the second half. A 412 on base, a 512 slugging percentage. He has, if you just look at unadjusted weighted on base average, he has a 384. That is the sixth best in the National League behind Goldschmidt, Christian Yelich, Arenado, Matt Carpenter, and Eugenio Suarez, his unadjusted, remember, these are not adjusted for park factors here, it's actually higher than Trevor Story. And as we'll talk about in a second, Nimmo plays in an unbelievable pitcher's park, and obviously Trevor Story plays in Coors Field. So for that to be true, uh, that says to me that, you know, Story's getting some kind of down-ballot MVP love. Nimmo has been as good or better, in my opinion. He's not a shortstop, obviously, um, but it is fantastic that he has not been like a hot start fluke. He actually looks like a starting caliber player uh, for a couple years down the road. Yeah, and, he's, and, and this goes back to last year. You know, he came up in the second half and he got minimum, minimum like uh, limited playing time, but he had like a, a 400 OBP. And like if you go back at OBP leaders of the last two years, he's among like the top 10 in the league. So if nothing else, you know he can be a high OBP guy. So next year, let's say Cespedes is healthy. You have Cespedes, Conforto, and Nimmo. This is the same question we ask every single year with the Mets. Who plays center field? Can anybody play center field? I think I'd put Nimmo there. I just feel like he's probably he played it a lot in the minors and is probably the fastest of them. It's still You're still not putting out a great defensive outfield. But I think the issue is also, I mean, who knows when Cespedes is going to come back. Yeah, I guess you can't really count on him there. Uh, let's quickly talk about what's happening in City Field. So my friend Jeff Sullivan at Fangraphs yesterday wrote an article about how City Field has been suppressing offense more than any other park in baseball. And it's always been considered a pitcher's park, but I don't think you really think of it as like the biggest pitcher's park. He looked at the years 2012 to 2018. City Field reduces runs by 14%. That is the biggest in baseball. The Mets hitters have a batting average on balls in play 30 points lower home versus road. That's the largest in MLB. And if you just look at the StatCast era from 2015 to 2018, the Mets hitters have a 1.1 mile an hour average exit velocity deficit at home. That is the largest in Major League Baseball. And I saw that piece and I had two reactions. Number one was, yes, he's totally right. Uh, We've seen a lot of this. And number two was, I was going to write about that so soon. Um, I've been kind of thinking about this for a couple months. Back in June, I wrote about how Houston was like a surprising pitcher's park. And at the time I wrote, since the start of 2017, Astros batters have performed worse at home in terms of batting average, batting average on balls in play, OBP and slugging. All of them were the second largest gaps in baseball to only the Mets. That's when I started thinking about this. And then Jeff had to go and write a fantastic piece about it. Well, you mentioned, you mentioned uh, Nimmo's home road splits before. Rosario's might be even more stark at home this year, he's hitting 201, 248, 338. On the road, he's hitting 302, 338, 431. Wow. <laughs> so on the road, he's like hitting like a, a shortstop who hits like that with his speed is like an all star. I, I, think, I think I mentioned it for Nimmo. I don't think I actually read the numbers out at home. Nimmo has a 365 on base and a 462 slugging. That's pretty good on the road. 419 on base and a 551 slugging. It seems like there's something there. Now, the, uh, the natural thought would be oh, 
Maybe that's why Jacob deGrom is having such a good year. His home ERA is 166. His road ERA is 176. I think Jacob deGrom is just an amazing pitcher no matter where you put him. Uh, But it is interesting to see people finally starting to talk about this city field effect that we kind of started to notice with the data a couple months ago. I don't know what the Mets can or will do about it. It'd be interesting to see if this changes next year, but it seems pretty clear to me that this is a real thing that is affecting Mets hitters. For sure. Marcelo Zuna is an interesting name. He was one of the guys uh, dealt away by the Marlins. And I think of all the trades, like of any team made this winter, I think I liked that one the best for the, like the team that got him. Cause I love Marcelo Zuna. He was amazing last year. Last year he slugged 548. He was fantastic. This year has not been so great. Uh, His on-base percentage is down 376 to 321. That's bad. Slugging percentage down by more than 100 points, 548 to 433. Also bad. And I think Cardinals fans have been kind of losing their mind about, you know, who do they acquire? This is not sort of what was promised. Well, because it was like the Cardinals, the one team, they're like, oh, we need a power hitter. And they they went out, oh, we got a power hitter. All right. You know, like, that's done. And because, I mean, the guy hit 37 home runs last year. It was really good. bomb like this is a true power hitter and it hasn't exactly worked out but then you showed me these numbers and they kind of blew my mind so as i said his his triple slash is down by a lot Uh, his his weighted on base average is down enormously 388 last year to 324 there is no way to say he's not having a worse year except i'm going to try to do exactly that last year his expected weighted on base that includes strikeouts and walks and quality of contact was 366 this year marcelo zuna's expected weighted on base is 366 Last year, his launch angle was 10.1 degrees. This year, his launch angle is 10.1 degrees. Last year, his hard hit rate, 45%. This year, his hard hit rate, 45%. It's wild. I cannot believe how totally identical uh, this is. And now he is starting to hit better. If you look since August 1st, he's actually been really good. 325, 359, 569. Uh, I did have a disabled list in there. So in 44 plate appearances since he's come back, 341 on base, 744 slugging. That's really, really good. I don't have a tremendously good answer for why he, you know, it took him this long to kind of perform this way, but we do know that there's something wrong with his shoulder, his right shoulder. Uh, and we know that for a couple of reasons. Number one, the team has admitted as such that they knew there was something wrong with the shoulder when they traded for him. This is not a case of damaged goods. They knew exactly what they were getting. And when I just referenced his disabled list stint, it was for a quarter zone shot in his right shoulder, and we have data on this. If you look at his throwing arm in the outfield, and we look at our maximum effort throws to try to just get to the ones where they're actually trying. In 2015, Marcelo Zuna averaged 92.1. That's really good. Next year, 89.5. Okay. Last year, 81.8. This year, 77.9 miles an hour on his throws. That is the lowest of any outfielder we looked at. Um, there's clearly something wrong there. And I have to assume that there is some connection here, but I don't understand why it's not showing up like in his hard hit stats. Well, that's the thing is like, you think there was some connection. Then again, like the real drop happened from 16 to 17 and 17 was the best hitting year of his career. So it's like, it's, it's, it's something's amiss, but it's also his, his he's a right-handed hitter. It's his right shoulder. So it's his, it's his, it's his back shoulder. So it's not like, it's maybe not quite, quite as important, quote unquote. Um, that's what's weird to me is that like, it'd be one thing if like, we saw the drop this year and the offense dropped with it. Sure. But the drop in the arm strength happened last year and he had the best year of his career. And he actually started hitting well before he got the quarter zone shot. This, he started hitting well like three weeks before he went on the disabled list. None of this makes any sense at all. Uh, it, it's it's a good sign for Cardinals fans, I guess. Like it's not a total disaster. There's a lot to like here. And I know, and I know before you mentioned, oh, the must-watch baseball of the weekend is 
A's Rays. And Cardinals for, Dodgers. Yeah, I mean, I think most people would say it's Cardinals Dodgers. Right now, the Cardinals hold a two-game lead over the Dodgers for the second wild card spot. They've got a four-game set starting tonight, Thursday, in St. Louis. This might be the best, ser- biggest series of the year. Pride myself on not being most people. Uh, <laughs> Sunday Night Baseball is going to be Adam Wainwright, who's going to be really interesting. He missed so much time. Came back last week and you know was throwing 89, 90. He actually got out of it okay. So you know credit to him. But I'm interested to see how that turns out. As a neutral observer, I mean, I want to see the Dodgers do some damage this weekend because the Phillies have just played They're their done. way out of the playoffs. They're cooked. They're um, and then... The D-backs last night losing on a walk-off to DJ LeMahieu. Oh, man. That was a, that was a <laughs> rough, rough loss. Their Look, bullpen has looked so bad lately. Exactly. In some ways, it's almost like better they're not going to make the playoffs because that bullpen <laughs> would not would not survive. But so right now, this wild, this crazy NL wild card race kind of looks like – right now, it kind of looks like just the Dodgers and the Cardinals, and they're playing for this for this – this weekend, I guess the, you know the D-backs still play the Rockies again, so they could kind of like make up some ground in the AL West, NL West, and such. But right now, the Rockies, I found this out last week. I think you put me onto this. The Rockies have never won the NL West, <laughs> which is which is insanity. <laughs> they have been around since 1993, and they have never won the West. Now you did some research, and I don't remember what the outcome was. Was this the longest run from an expansion of team? expansion teams? The longest run without winning the finishing first, because you went went back to the expansion era, so you had to go back to 61, which predates the divisions. Um, the longest drought before finishing first is, yes, 25 years. Rockies tied with the Marlins, who also have never finished in first in their division, but they have won the World Series twice. <laughs> well, I think the Rockies have a better shot of breaking that streak than the Marlins do yes. anytime and then, soon. And then, of course, the shortest drought ever was the D-backs, who took one year before winning 100. It's kind of – I think we kind of forget how ridiculous yeah, it was. I, I forgot that happened. I remember the World Series, right? That in 1999, they won 100 games in their second year of existence because they signed Randy Johnson as a free agent and – Jay Bell went off. Jay, Jay Bell went off. Steve Finley had a huge year. Yeah. They signed Matt Williams. Luis Gonzalez was there. Yeah. yeah so it's – but 2001 was the big Luis Gonzalez year when they won, right. when they won the World Series. But still, they – so yes, the, the longest drought is the um, is the Rockies and Marlins – the shortest drought is the D-backs. That is an incredible fact. And I'm, I'm really glad you spent the time uh, to look that up. We are going to finish off our show today by talking about someone we spent a lot of time talking about last winter and probably haven't mentioned it at all for the last six months. Eric Hosmer, uh, not off to a very good start in his first year with San Diego. He's hitting 251, 315, 398. It's his lowest slugging percentage since 2012. That's his lowest weighted runs created plus since 2012. He's got a 92. That is below average uh, for baseball and also for being a first baseman. His 322 expected weighted on base is below league average. It's down from 360 last year. It's similar to Todd Frazier, Wilmer Flores, Tucker Barnhart. These are not the names you expect when you hand out a massive contract to a first base only player. It's interesting to me. He actually had a good April. Uh, He had 290, 398 on base, 450 slugging. 134 weighted runs created plus that's that's good you know you'd be happy with that if you put that up all year but in 456 plate appearances from may through the end of august he hit 245 with a 294 and a 379 slugging percentage um he actually in july hit only 186 with a 231 on base and a 245 slugging it's one of the 12 weakest months in the history of the san diego padres lots of early ozzy smith ahead of him on that list none of these are things that you would want to be talking about uh in terms of what happened when they signed him last year unsurprisingly of every hitter in baseball with at least 100 batted balls he has the lowest launch angle at negative 0.9 degrees second highest ground ball rate behind and i bet you could guess this if you're listening Ian Desmond, because we've talked about that too. Okay, so that is a lot of intro to say that Eric Hosmer has been a giant mess. The Padres have not been good, and the contract does not look great right now uh, for the team. 
But Eric Hosmer's slugging 472 in September. He homered last weekend on Friday and Saturday and Sunday. I thought that was really interesting. And then on Tuesday in the San Diego Union Tribune, there was a, an interview with him about what he was doing. And here's what he said. I guess that we, that's what we've been searching for all year. It just got to the point where I wanted to focus on the main thing. What's the main thing of getting the ball in the air? You don't say. Wow. I don't think anybody's been talking about Eric Hosmer putting the ball in the air for the last, I don't know, three or four years. If you look at his monthly launch angle stats, every single month was either zero or one or below. September, he's plus four. That's still not a lot. It's not, you know, Matt Olson up at plus 19 or whatever, but it's positive. If you look at his ground ball rate, every single month, it was 56% or higher. In June, it was actually 68%. In September, 44%. I don't want to confuse this as Eric Hosmer uh, being good yet because he's still got like a 280 on base in September. Like, there's still a lot of problems here. But it's interesting to think that maybe, just maybe, he's going to try to start hitting the ball in the air. He still hits the ball hard. I don't know if that's going to change the outcomes here, but it's interesting to see him talk about it because he kind of seemed pretty dismissive of it, which I totally understand. He's been a very successful big leaguer who got a huge contract, and that's great for him. It does seem like things are the tone is changing here. Yeah, and the Padres are, I know we say this all the time, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to say this without mentioning my, the pitcher that I love so dear, who's really had a disappointing season. Eric Lauer. Um, <laughs> the Padres are interesting. Uh, they're very interesting. They, they were our unofficial team last year. We haven't really talked about them that much this year. They're more interesting now. And they've got so many, like, you know, they've got so many like, young players with like a lot, with a lot of ceiling. You know, they just, they brought in Francisco Mejia and the Brad Hand trade. You know, they have um, Fernando Tatis Jr. in the minors, one of the top two or three prospects in the game. Can I, can I interrupt you for a second? Yes. Acquired for James Shields. Let us let us never ever forget that acquired for James Shields. Then you throw in you know the other interesting guys, Ramiel Reyes, Franchi Franchi Cordero, um, Manny Margot, and now Luis Arias, who's very interesting. Luis Arias is interesting, and then there's there's talk. I've heard a lot of talk that they're going to be big in on Machado this offseason. I could totally see it. And like they, you wonder where he's because you know Will Martin's been playing some third base, so where's Machado going to play? They have the worst. By the thing, what's interesting is that they, if you want Machado to play shortstop, he could. This year they rank 30th in, in war from shortstops per fan graphs. That said, Freddie Galvis mostly, yeah, right? Yes, Freddie Galvis mostly. Of course, Tatis is a shortstop by trade, but of course you could move Machado to third, put Will Myers back in the outfield. There's a lot of different ways it could go. I could totally see it. Um, their payroll is interesting in the sense that, like, Will Myers signed that that long term deal, but it's a backloaded deal, so it doesn't start getting expensive to 2020. You know, next year he still he made 4.5 this year, he makes 5.5 next year, and then it's 22.5 the next three years after that. But they have enough young players and flex and roster flexibility that them being a destination for Machado makes a ton of sense, and that would be fascinating. So they traded, as you said, Brad Hand uh, and Adam Simber, who, by the way, has been a absolute mess with with Cleveland I haven't looked in the last couple of days but for a while he had like a four percent strikeout rate with Cleveland and uh the idea was I think that was a very strong bullpen and the bullpen would probably do worse and I haven't looked at the team numbers maybe they have yesterday they played Seattle and the Padres bullpen struck out nine straight hitters from the sixth inning through the eighth inning and I'm only like partially sure I've actually heard of all these guys and I'm just looking at the last names I don't know all their first names I don't really know who Wingender is um, but he was awesome he struck out all three guys in the first inning I do know who Robert Stock is because he's one of your favorites I interviewed him when he was in a freshman at USC in 2007 and then uh, Castillo and then Craig Stammen who's been around forever and it was uh, finished off by Kirby Yates this is a really interesting team are you gonna tell me who Wingender is now no, I was going to okay. say, Robert Stock is yes. a dude, and he is totally the poster boy for 
what you know the you know Kyle Body and the tribe line calls like training with intent. He like he had a quote. He was like. I knew I could get guys out throwing 92 in the majors, but I figured it'd be easier if I could throw 100. That's an amazing quote. He basically like trained him. I mean, he already obviously had the, the natural gifts to throw low 90s. He was youth player of the year when I was at Baseball America in like 2006. He went to, he graduated high school. He did what like Bryce Harper did before Bryce Harper. He graduated high school a year early to go play at USC as like a 17 year old, but never panned out as a catcher. He was a catcher, a two way player who was going to be a catcher as a prospect. Never panned out, basically bounced around for years and then. Tried to make a comeback going through like training with driveline and the indie, indie ball. And now he throws legit 100 and looks like a, a relief a relief ace. Um, I looked this up. Trey Wingenter. I don't feel bad about not knowing who Trey Wingenter is. He was a 17th round pick in 2015 out of Auburn. Uh, he's only pitched in the big leagues for a couple weeks, but he does have 20 strikeouts in 14 innings. He's maybe, I don't know, the 540th best pitcher in baseball, and he's striking out 20 guys in 14 innings. I don't know how anybody hits anything. Uh, there's a lot of guys in the Padres that I think most people don't know. If you were to ask the average baseball fan, name a Padre, they, they know Hosmer, uh, Will Myers, perhaps, and that might be it, right? And it's a little unfortunate because there's a lot of really interesting guys there. I still like Hunter Renfro. I don't know if he's actually going to hit enough to, to play, but he's, he's a lot of fun to play the outfield. He's slugging, like, he's slugging 500 this year. I mean, he has, yeah. he has power, whether or not the, you know he, he will – Draw enough walk to hit for enough average to kind of really be like a, a, a impact player. But he's hitting 258, 308, 519 this year in 377 PAs. He has an insane arm. Yeah. He's a fun player. And Fran Milrays is kind of like a version of Franchi Cordero because he's enormous and he crushes the ball. Anyway, I don't know that the Padres are going to be contenders next year. I do agree with you. They're going to make some interesting trades or signings. I think they'll be the kind of the team that says, we're going to get somebody – a year before we need them to, and hopefully that'll work out better than Eric Hosmer has. But I think that they could be in on Machado. They have the money. There's no question about that. Uh, that's our show for this week. This is the MLB.com StatCast podcast. Thanks for listening.